Well, I have one of those uh, very deep theological, philosophical questions for you. Do you believe that the number of days that we have to live on this earth are determined before we are even born? And if so, if so, does that mean that we cannot, we or, nor anyone else can do anything to change that date? Let, let me repeat that. Do you believe that the number of our days on this earth are determined before we are even born? And if that is so, that we can do nothing to change the, the date when we are supposed to die? The answer to this question, I am convinced, is yes with qualification, with an explanation. I mean, part of the answer is easy. Psalm 139.16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The Lord has our lives mapped out. So yes, our days are planned before we're even born. Someone asked me one day, they said, okay, so, that means if I step in front of a bus and it's not my time, then I won't die. I said, if you step in front of a bus, it's your time. <laughs> right? So, it, it, it gets a little bit tricky. It gets a little bit complicated. In, in our text today, we're going to see an example of someone who has been promised to live what turns out to be at least two more years. And yet, his response to danger and... and, and, and and potential harm is anything but passive. I'm referring, of course, to the Apostle Paul. If you were here last week, you remember we left him in prison. And Jesus had come to him at the very end saying, Take courage, Paul. Just as you've testified of me in Jerusalem, you will testify of me in Rome. If you're just joining us, we are going through uh, a study in the book of Acts. We're well into that. We're into chapters 23 and 24 on this day. And, and, and one of the reasons that this study is so important is that the work that was begun, Jesus building his church through the power of the Holy Spirit according to the plan of God, Trinitarian in, in, in its effect, that work that was begun in the first century is carrying on nearly 2,000 years later. So, so that means that the subject matter is of great importance to us. Now, we're going to be watching over these next several weeks the Apostle Paul, who's been arrested by the Roman authorities, on trial for his life. And as he is standing on trial, he stands firm for the truth. While Paul must give an answer to the accusations brought against him, it's ultimately the gospel that is on trial. And he defends the gospel in himself quite well. If you are willing to share the gospel... And especially if you are willing to share it on a fairly consistent basis, I can assure you that both the gospel and you will be on trial. Our text today is Acts 23, 11 through 24, 21. Now, really, there are, there are two themes. One, and I've introduced both of them already. One is, how are we supposed to live in the light of God's sovereignty and yet circumstances that are constantly changing around us? And the other is what it means to be on trial for the sake of the gospel. 
We're going to stand in just a moment and read Acts 23, verses 11 to 35, and address the question of God's sovereignty over our days and our charge to live both faithfully and responsibly. And then we're going to work through the rest of the chapter, the remainder of the text, I mean, where Paul gives a defense of his beliefs before Felix, the provincial governor of Judea. He's in Caesarea. We're going to see in this first part of the text where we're reading in just a moment where this plot is hatched against Paul's life. They get out of Dodge with nearly 400 soldiers. Can you imagine that? Four, almost 400 soldiers accompany Paul to Caesarea because of this plot. And there's so much that's quite entertaining about this text that I would love to say that we just don't have time to look at this morning. And then we're going to move on for the rest. Our text begins where it ends last week with Paul in prison, discouraged, feeling probably very much like a, like a failure as the apostle who's been called by Jesus to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. But Jesus encourages him, and, and then immediately after Jesus says, I'm going to protect you, there's a threat to his life. So if you would, please stand, and we're going to read Acts 23. Verses 11 through 35, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. The following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, the middle of the night, and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them 
with the soldiers and rescued having rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, he didn't learn till he was a Roman citizen. He didn't learn that he, Paul was a Roman citizen until he was about to whip him. But, you know, Felix, I mean, uh, Claudius Lysias wants to look good in front of Felix. So he tells it that way. Verse uh, 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had gone to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing with your accusers when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, um, quite an exciting account that we read of Paul and an amazing uh, contingent of Roman soldiers who accompany him to Caesarea. And Lord, we see your hand every step of the way. It's you holding on to Paul and preserving not only his life, but that of the gospel, which, Lord, oddly brought great joy to Paul, not oddly because of his love for you. He was far more concerned about the gospel than he was his own life. Lord, may our hearts be stirred as we consider what it means to live according to this incredible example that you've given us, who lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul trusted you every step of the way. He didn't survive on his own instincts or wisdom and accept that which you had given him. So, Lord, may we read and learn, and may we hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. Now, as we can see from this passage that we just read, Paul was in mortal danger. Really interesting turn of events, isn't it? Jesus comes in and he says, you're going to be safe until you get to Rome. Nothing's going to happen to you until you get to Rome. Just like you've preached in Jerusalem, you're going to share the truth about me, Jesus told him, in Rome. But But the morning, the very morning after, here's a plot against his life. I I wonder how most of us would have responded. I I mean, wouldn't you think that most of us would say, Hey, plot all you want to. Jesus told me last night, nothing's going to happen to me. Happy plotting. Paul didn't respond that way at all. We'd say, Hey, I can't wait to see how he's going to deal with these troublemakers. You ever done that? You ever been passive about something that was a great need in your life, but you you were passive because you said, well, the Lord is going to take care of me. 
Ever been passive about a, a job search? Or about your health? Or, or about witnessing? Because God's going to do whatever He's going to do, right? And our days are numbered, and our circumstances are in His hands. And so all I've got to do is just trust. Well, that's true, but trust leads us to live responsibly. Paul's response is quite a lesson to us. Um, you know, it's not typical that, that we have 40 fanatics who have taken a vow not to eat or drink until we're dead. That doesn't happen more than once or twice a year, I know. So, but, but there are lots of ways for most of you. Some of you it's a little more often, but a little more frequently. But, but, but there, are, there are ways that, that, that come into play in our lives. Several years ago, I, I learned that we were going to need $15,500 worth of new siding on our home in Bowie's Creek. Uh, it turned out to be over 21000 before it was over. And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is, what? we don't have that kind of money. There's no possible way we can get that kind of money. But something happened shortly after we were given the figure of 15500 that was quite comforting to me. I sensed the Lord saying to me very directly, pray that I will meet this need. Now, this requires a little explanation. I am not natured in such a way that I often hear the Lord, you know, saying, this is what I want you to do, or this is something, this is something. Almost never. Now, my mother, different story. She would say, the Lord told me such and such was going to happen. The Lord told me this, and I would mock her. You know, I'd say, what did he do, call you on the phone? Did he come to the door? How did he, how did he tell you exactly? After a while, I quit mocking her because every single thing that she said was going to happen, happened. I mean, she's prophesying, you know, about this is going to happen. Well, um, I don't get those kind of impressions from the Lord, and I'm suspicious of them because I, I know that a lot of people can do a lot of bad things under the guise of this is what the Lord told me to do and a lot of foolish things. So I'm always suspicious, and I want to know. But there are times that it's been absolutely undeniable. The Lord has said, this is what I want you to do. And almost always, it's I want you to pray about something. Now, usually it's when I'm thinking about something or praying for someone. But he says, I want you, I just get this strong, overwhelming sense. I want you to pray about this. And, and, and what excited me so much when I sensed the Lord saying that to me, and it comes out of the blue, by the way. It's just out of the blue, and it's undeniable that something has occurred in my heart. That the Lord has spoken to me. What was so exciting to me about this one was, every time that that had happened before, every time it's ever happened, the Lord has answered the prayer just exactly like I prayed it. Now, that's, you won't be so impressed when you know that that's only been like five or six, seven times in my life. It doesn't happen very often. But I'm thinking, we're in the money, we're in. I'm just thinking, you know, the Lord is going gonna, is gonna to meet this need and it's not going to be a big deal. Well, to give you a timetable, the siding company came and gave us the bad news in November. I don't remember what year it was. It was quite a few, ago, about seven or eight years ago. In November. Then, and they said we're going to do this work in February. In late December, after Christmas, 
we drove up, Linda and I drove up with Michael to Annapolis. This was his first big road trip. He was going up to Buffalo, and he was really worried about getting through D.C. And he was going to kick on over through Pennsylvania that way, up to Buffalo. And so we said, I'll tell you what. Let's go to Annapolis. It's a beautiful town, and we'll, we'll all stay there that night, just have a good time together, and then we'll go back the next day. On the way back, we had taken with us a book that my father-in-law had given us a couple of years early, earlier called uh, The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. Many of you are aware of this book. And uh, so we read almost the whole thing on the way back. Between the two of us, taking turns driving, we, we read the, the book and began to put those principles into practice. Well, I kept praying. And, and by the way, that, that made a remarkable difference in our lives. I mean, instead of at the end of the month doing the books and saying, Ah, where did the money go? For almost every month of our lives to that point, all of a sudden we're building these reserves to pay car repairs and, and, and insurance and those, you know, bi-yearly, bi-annual insurance payments. And, and it was a remarkable change. But we had a $15,500 bill coming due, which eventually was paid with a second mortgage on our home. Now, I, you know, that didn't bother me at all because I'm thinking, hey, the Lord's told me to pray about this. It's going to happen. So I keep praying. I keep praying. And one day I'm praying... And I say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to meet this need, but I know you're going to. Please meet this need. And it was, again, just as clear as day. And I almost never get this, but it was like he said, I already have. You read the book. Do you get the point? The Lord said, you were not in a position to handle this crisis because of the way that you were living. Now... You are beginning to live responsibly and you're going to be just fine with this. Now, please do not make the wrong inference from what I'm saying. Life is not just about us getting up in the morning, washing our face and saying, I'm going to take control of this day. Look, so many days when we say that, the Lord says, yeah, right. And then, you know, it just goes to pieces. We, we are always, God is the one who allows us to get out of bed. He's the one who, who causes those of us who are disciplined to, 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 to live in such a, a structured way. I, I'm not saying that this is all about us. God is sovereign. All of life is dependent upon Him. He does lead us, however, in a way that reflects the character of Jesus which includes taking responsibility for our circumstances at the same time that we lean on Him in total trust for the outcome of all life. Isn't that what Paul did? I mean, Paul, the next morning, there's a plot. He could have easily said, not worrying about it, God's going to take care of it. You know, so many times when people say, oh, God will take care of my finances, they live in such a way that causes other people to take care of their finances. And they call it God taking care of them. But it's really others taking care of them. The same thing is true in in all kinds of areas and arenas of our lives. So whether it's your finances, your marriage, your children, 
your job situation, your relationships with others, your connection with Grace Community Church, your witness, your health. No matter what it is, you are called to live faithfully. I trust God and responsibly. I'm going to live in response to what happens in life, trusting God every step of the way, but I'm going to do what I can do. And remember, this life is never going to go like we want it to because of the fall and because of sin in the world. But it will go the way God wants it to, and He expects us to live both faithfully and responsibly regardless of how things appear to be. And there's no question that there is a far greater tendency, especially in America, towards self-discipline and a work ethic than there is toward trust. And that goes against the gospel. When you work, 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 it's all work. When we live according to God's direction and plans, two things are automatic. One, we're living the best life possible. When we live according to God's direction, according to His plans, we are living the best life possible. And number two, it may not seem like a good thing at all because we're going to be under constant spiritual attack. The more we are like Jesus, the more Satan hates that. Just think about Paul's plight where he was in Acts 23 and 24. He finds himself in a defensive position against the greatest political power in the world, Rome, and against the greatest religious power in the world, Jerusalem. And it's got to be incredibly naive to think that he can come against them and win. How is he expected to survive, much less be successful in his calling to evangelize his world? Well, in the first place, the results were up to God. It wasn't his calling. It was Jesus' call upon his life. Paul only had to live faithfully and responsibly, which he did. But it doesn't mean it was easy. He was on trial, as was the gospel. Now, I'm going to sort of talk through the first part of Acts 24, which records Paul's uh, trial before Felix. But I'm not going to read the text, so typically it'd be on the screen. Um, If you would, make sure your Bible is open and and you're reading this. You need to know that Felix was a harsh ruler. He, he was a difficult guy. I mean, there were no guarantees that Paul would receive a fair trial when he stood before Felix, much less that he would enjoy a satisfactory conclusion. Again, Jesus has told Paul, you're going to be all right till you get to Rome. But he didn't live like it. And I'm not suggesting, I, I, I think there's something of of works in this statement, and you may make it, and I, I don't mean, mean that. For me, if I said this, it would be sort of works-oriented. I, I, I'm not saying pray as if it all depended on God, work as if it all depended on you. I, that's not what I'm saying. It, it, it's in that direction, but, but, but the heart is what makes the difference in all of this. And so Paul defends himself as well as he can, but as he stands before Felix, this is no... Sure thing whatsoever. Felix had been born a slave, but he had won his freedom in political office through a family friendship with Claudius, who eventually became emperor, who was emperor at the time of this uh, writing. And in spite of the gracious words that Tertullus, the Jewish lawyer who came to 
to accuse Paul that we find there in Acts 24. In spite of his gracious words about Felix, this governor was corrupt and immoral. He was married to uh, Drusilla, a Jewish, the youngest daughter of Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I. And that, that crowd was just messed up big time. Far from bringing the kind of peace that Tertullus ascribed to Felix, <clears throat> the governor had actually created a great deal of unrest in Judea. Uh, and, and there were rebellions and insurrections everywhere amongst the Jews because of the way that Felix treated them. I mean, <clears throat> anytime a little thing would come up, he'd have the leader crucified. Well, that just created more and more rebellion. So there was a great deal of hatred here. The Roman historian Tacitus described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. It was this Felix before whom Paul stood, accused by a very skillful lawyer, Tertullus. Tertullus brought three charges against Paul. First, he accused him of being a troublemaker all over the world. Now remember, Felix didn't like troublemakers. He stamped it out. As soon as he saw a troublemaker, he stamped him out. And if Felix were to believe the Jews, then Paul had caused trouble, not only in Judea, but all over the world. Heck, there had already been a riot in Jerusalem just down the road just a few days ago. Second, Paul was accused of being a part of the Nazarene sect. Now, Judaism was acknowledged by the, by the empire as, a, as, as a, uh, a, a legal and legitimate religion. But these Nazarenes were a cult. They were an offshoot of Judaism. They were crazies. You know, they were like... All of the cults that we know about where there's mind control and there are just a great deal of immorality and, 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 and even death, suicides, when people are, are, are attacked. So, Paul is a part of these crazies. Last, Tertullus accused Paul of desecrating the temple. And, and, and since the Romans had given the Jews unusual latitude in dealing with religious matters, the hope was they'd say, okay, well, look, he's broken your laws, not Rome's. We'll turn him back over to you. So this was a very skillful and dangerous attack on Paul at trial. Thankfully, he was allowed to respond to these charges. The first thing Paul said was that he didn't stir up the trouble. They did. He said, I'm minding my own business. They're the ones. Furthermore, Paul gladly confessed that he was a follower of the way, which is what Christianity was often called. If you hear about a group called the way today, you're, you're, you're talking about a cult. But in that day, that was, the, that was the name for Christianity. But he assured Felix that the way... Following Jesus was built on the law and the prophets and that he believed everything in the Old Testament. In addition, Paul professed hope in the resurrection, both of the just, and he also said, I believe in the resurrection of the unjust. 
Now, this may not sound like a, a very clear and bold presentation of the gospel to you. But, but in the next chapter, we're going to learn that Felix already had a very good understanding of what Christianity was about. He already had a good idea. So did the Jews. They knew the gospel. And Paul was clearly stating that I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's not about law, but it's about Jesus. It was not only Paul who was on trial. It was especially, in fact, the gospel that was on trial. Paul's defense, both of himself and the gospel, were quite clever. But as far as we know, nobody believed. Nobody believed. We will see next week, though, that both Paul and Christianity were declared legal, although Paul remained in custody. It was part of God's plan in getting him to Rome. All of this was a part of the way that it happened. So that, that, that rebellion that had happened or that, that plot against Paul's life and Paul's telling Claudius Lysias, getting the word to him and, and Claudius sending, sending Paul under protection to Felix. All of this is a part of God's plan. Even though Paul was visibly participating in his own safety. God was moving the pieces on the chessboard. You know, in these last 2,000 years, the gospel has never gone off trial, not for a minute. The assault against Jesus is never ending. And if you're his follower, it's the same thing. As far as Satan is concerned, you're the same thing as him, and he hates you. And the attacks come at us in numerous ways, whether we're currently sharing the gospel or not. It's, it's not like the demons are saying, hey, hey, boss, Brian is now sharing the gospel. Now, can it, now is it okay for us to go get him? It's constant from every angle. And, and I'm not saying that, that, that Christians are the only, people that, the only people in the world that have bad things happen to them. My goodness, life is full of trials no matter what our circumstances, but there is a component that is, that is extra in nature for those who follow Jesus. So how are we to respond? With faithful trust in the Lord. First, more than anything else, trusting God, recognizing that He moves this life according to His plan and according to His will, but also with wise and responsible behavior. So what is it in your life that requires attention right now? What is it that the very thought of this makes you paralyzed because you feel like an effort on your part would be and represent a move in the flesh, and, and with all of our focus rightly, not only in this place, but all over Christendom, a renewed emphasis on the gospel. You've heard me say many times that sanctification, that growing in Christ is more about better believing than it is better behavior. 
Because when we understand and we believe what God has done for us, it causes us to, to be different. With all of that, God expects us to live in a way that reflects the character of Jesus. And we do that in His strength and in His power. And in addition to better health, better money management, better relationships within and without your family, if we approach spiritual disciplines with the right heart, with the proper heart and trust, including in those spiritual disciplines our obedience to God's command and His call on our lives to advance the gospel, then our walk with Jesus will improve remarkably. There are so many things that we have no control over in this life. There are a lot of things that we do have control over. And as we start to structure and order our lives in a way that will benefit our families, ourselves, our church, our communities, the tendency is to become legalistic about those things. We, we must never let that happen. And if, if we've ever had an example, it's the Apostle Paul. He was anything but legalistic. And yet, he took control as best he could. He followed the Lord's leading to take control and take charge of his life in the circumstances, in, in the ways that he could. It was a lot that he couldn't do. But what he could do, he did very well. But all the time, his heart was before the Lord. You know, um, I, I, I've talked with this, talked about this with Allison a lot. Um, Linda Talley was probably as health conscientious as anybody I know. Um, she didn't exercise just because of time, really, more than anything else. She didn't exercise a lot. She did some. But she ate as well as just about anybody I know. And she got a brain tumor. Um, she would be eating, you know, grass, and I'd be eating a cheeseburger. And here I am, and she's with the Lord. Well, she's far better off. But it's not because she ate one way, I ate another. And the tendency for me in response to that is to say, well, really, does it really matter? Well, I think this text says, yes, it does. Yes, it does. It does matter how we live. It matters how we structure our lives. And it's not just our health that's at stake. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Now, God's going to take care of the gospel. Paul, I know, felt like, I've blown it. I'm never going to be able to fulfill my, the calling that Jesus put on my life. But Jesus said, yes, you are. And just keep living like you're supposed to live and trusting me. And I'll take care of you. So, that's where we are. Let's pray.